Chris Holmes, our Scotland residents, mapped out a sermon series for us called The Acceptable Time. What we're doing is looking at various texts in both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, looking at places where there's the language of what God welcomes, of what God accept, of, accepts, rather, of what God favors. Uh, and today, we are under the theme of an acceptable sacrifice. And for that theme, we turn to Psalm 51, a text that's familiar to many of us, a text that's typically read on Ash Wednesday. We didn't read it on Ash Wednesday this year. Uh, we've held it for this Sunday to be part of our series. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 17. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being, therefore teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God. You will not turn away. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open uh, this ancient word afresh to us in this hour so that we would be changed, that we'd be different people than those who came into this sacred space, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen. Uh, several years ago, I found myself in a courtroom at a sentencing hearing, hearing rather, for a new friend of mine. Earlier that week, this friend, who was a financial advisor, husband, father of young children, this man who ran his own boutique investment firm, earlier that week, he pled guilty to embezzling two and a half million dollars from his clients. I went to court that day because our families were getting to know each other, as it is often the case, through our children. A friendship was emerging with our families. In fact, this man and his family started worshiping at the church we were serving at the time, and we were becoming friends. Uh, 
this man was a doting father, a committed husband, and he showed up in the world with a very kind heart. He wanted, like any of us, what was best for his family. He wanted to provide all that he could for his spouse and for his children. He got caught up, though, in a cycle of greed and a quest for more that spiraled out of control and led him to both unethical and illegal actions. So as I sat in the courtroom at his sentencing, I was part of, for the very first time, that process where victims give an impact statement. I'd never experienced something like that before in person. They spoke of broken trust. They spoke of vanished uh, retirement savings. They spoke of financial obligations that could no longer be met. Some spoke through tears and through sadness. Some spoke with anger and hostility in their voice. Faces turned red, fists shaking in the air. After the statements were made, it was my friend's turn to speak. Before he could utter a single word, he began to cry. He apologized to his victims. He apologized to their families. He apologized to his wife and to his children. And then he talked to the judge about how much he had lost, how he lost trust, how he lost his company, how he lost his career, how he lost friendships and self-respect, how his wife, the day after he was arrested, kicked him out of the house, and how she had since filed for divorce, and how he jeopardized his relationship with his children and his extended family, not to mention the fact that he would definitely be serving time in prison. And as he came to the end, he said something that has stuck with me some 15 years later. He said, your honor, I would do anything to make this right. I would do anything to, to make this right. I would give anything to go back in time and make different choices. I would do anything to make it right but I can't, I can't. The desperation in his voice and the defeat in his body was obvious. He was crushed and overcome by guilt and shame and a certain measure of hopelessness in the truth and the realization that indeed there was nothing he could do to make it right. It was true, there was nothing he could do to make it right. Have you ever observed someone or witnessed someone in that predicament? Have you ever watched someone under the burden of their own guilt and their shame come to that conclusion? There's nothing that I could do to make it right. Perhaps you know all too well that predicament in your own life. Maybe you're living that even now, or maybe you know what it's like to have lived it 
in the past, racked by shame and guilt and bearing the burden of the truth that you are incapable of repairing a broken relationship, that you're incapable of undoing a selfish or harmful decision, that you are incapable of healing your own broken heart and knitting back together your tattered soul. If you understand that kind of experience, you understand what the psalmist the one who penned Psalm 51 was going through. And I wanna get into that predicament in just a few moments, but first, and this may seem a little bit out of left field, but in order to understand the gravity and the weight of what the psalmist is actually saying, we have to know just a little something about the practice of sacrifice in ancient Israel. If we're going to understand what the psalmist is actually saying here, we're going to need to know something about sacrifice and how it functioned in the religious life and the religious imagination of the people of God. So in the scripture, there are two types of sacrifices, and they, they often go together. The first sacrifice is a sacrifice to someone. You sacrifice something of value to someone. The second form is that you sacrifice something of value for something else. That you give something of value up to receive something of value in return. And that second form is what's most important for our interpretation of this psalm this morning. A sacrifice for something. This type of sacrifice is part of an exchange, that I sacrifice this for something else. If I sacrifice this thing of value, I'm going to receive this thing of value. If I sacrifice this thing of value, I'm going to realize this thing of value. We understand this, right? We, we can talk about a soldier who has sacrificed their life on the battlefield for the cause of freedom or democracy. Or we could talk about the sacrifices our parents made in working two jobs so they could pay our tuition for college. You give something up in order to receive something else. It's the epitome of quid pro quo. If I sacrifice this thing of value, something of greater value will be received. Now in the Hebrew Bible, one of the most prominent examples of sacrificing for something uh, comes from a day known as the Day of Atonement, or what our Jewish friends call Yom Kippur. Uh, the word atonement literally means to be at one. And in the Judeo-Christian understanding of atonement, to be at one has two directions. We are at one with God, and we're at one with one another that we're reconciled with God and we're reconciled with one another. But the scriptures tell us that sin and the pollution of the human heart breaks that oneness. That our decisions, that our sin separates us from that oneness, from that atonement, from that reconciliation. And because of a multitude of sins, because of a multitude of sins, the scriptures say something has to be done in order to be forgiven, in order to be at one, in order to be reconciled. And that's where the people of God 
had this idea of the Day of Atonement. And this is how it worked. One day every year, the high priest would enter the tabernacle, the worship space, the sanctuary, bringing with him two goats. One goat would be killed, would be slaughtered as an offering and a sacrifice to cover the people's sins. The other goat had a different role to play. And this is in Leviticus 16 if you're looking for nighttime reading. Okay? The high priest would take his hands and put them on the goat, and the high priest would pray and speak the sins of the people onto that goat, transferring the sins onto that goat. Then the high priest would take the goat outside of the tabernacle, release it into the wilderness. They called it the scapegoat. And it would take the sins away from the holy place and from the people of God so that atonement could be realized, so that reconciliation could be realized once again. So this sacrifice, this sacrifice was made for something. Do you follow me? It was made for atonement. It was made for reconciliation. If we do this, we get that. Now I wanna turn back to the Psalm of the day with this now in the front of our minds. You know that Psalm 51 has been used by ancients and moderns to confess sin, to confess the pollution of the human heart, the actions that have us in desperate need for reconciliation with God and reconciliation with one another. It's a standard in the lexicon of confession. Over and over again, we see this show up in worship and liturgy over the span of time as we confess our sins to God. But one of the most fascinating and compelling, and I would suggest often overlooked aspects of Psalm 51, is how the author intimates that the sacrificial system that I just described for you, the sacrificial system of their religious community, how the psalmist intimates that that system was not sufficient to forgive his sins. What they had done, what the writer had done, was so debased, was so grave, so depraved, so wanton, that God wouldn't accept the typical sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. The language of the text says it clearly. Listen to what the psalmist writes. For you have no delight in sacrifice. Wait, what? I thought you did welcome that sacrifice. You have no delight in sacrifice, says the psalmist. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The psalmist is undercutting the very system of sacrifice in the ancient world for the people of God, saying that you wouldn't welcome this sacrifice, God. My sins are so grave. It's like my friend who was standing before the judge in that courtroom. There is nothing I can do, no sacrifice I can make to make it right. Like I just don't have the power to make amends. I don't have the power to make it right. And this text reveals, I think, a very hard truth but it's a truth that I think we all know full well, that not everything can be rectified. Not everything 
can be made right or be realized by our own hands, by our own sacrifices, by the judicial system, by our cash, by our power, by our apologies, or by our penitence. There are situations and circumstances and relationships that we've tried to reconcile, that we've tried to redeem, tried to amend, tried to make whole, tried to make clean, and we just do not have the ability to do it. We can't buy it, we can't sacrifice for it. Quid pro quo does not apply. And that's why the psalmist declares, have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love. In other words, what the psalmist is saying, God, you're gonna have to make it right. I I can't make it right. You're gonna have to make things right. You're gonna have to make things right in my relationships. You're gonna have to make things right in my inner life. You're gonna have to make things right in this world. There's not a sacrifice that I can make that would be acceptable that could make it right. But the psalmist does know, and here's the good news of the morning, that there is something that God will accept. And the psalmist says as much, the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Friends, the Hebrew word for contrite means to have a heart that has collapsed. Metaphorically speaking, it's a heart that has stopped beating. It's a heart that's been broken beyond repair. It's a heart that's been crushed. What is acceptable to God is a humble confession that there is nothing in our power to make it right. Nothing. Nothing can be bought or exchanged or sacrificed to be made whole or to be forgiven except a contrite heart. That's what's acceptable to God. You know, Jesus talked about this in his own ministry. He used different language for it. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, when he talked about the poor in spirit? That's what it means to have a contrite heart, to be poor in spirit, to have a poverty in spirit. In fact, later on in the Gospels, Luke chapter 18, to be precise, he tells a story about a poverty of spirit. He says, two men went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, a religious leader, an elite of the day. The other was a tax collector, a traitor to his own people who worked for the Roman government, the occupiers of the land. And the Pharisee stood before God and prayed, saying, thank you that I'm not like these rogues and these thieves and these sinners like this tax collector over here. I pray and I fast and I give a portion of my income to the work of the Lord. Jesus says the tax collector stood at a distance and he wouldn't even lift his eyes up to the heavens. He only looked down and he began to beat his chest and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, poor in spirit. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus wrapped up the parable by saying this, I tell you that that man went home justified because those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The psalmist stands in the shoes of the tax collector when they write, have mercy on me, O God, because I've got nothing but a broken and contrite heart. 
How does God ultimately overcome this estrangement? How does God show mercy? In other words, how does God show favor and grace? The Christian declares, and it's in full view in this season of Lent, that God accomplishes this reconciliation, God accomplishes this forgiveness, God accomplishes this atonement in and as the person of Jesus Christ. That's how God does it. God in the flesh, in and as the person of Christ, the Christ who makes the ultimate sacrifice, a sacrifice that is fully sufficient for us all and a sacrifice that only he can make. I love how Paul said it in Romans when he said, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for us. God proves God's love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But more than that, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The writer of Ephesians put it like this, for by grace you have been saved by faith. And this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God. It's a gift of God. Not the results of works so that no one may boast. Friends, I close with this Lenten invitation to accept the fact that you're accepted to accept the fact that God's grace is sufficient, to accept the fact that there are parts of our lives that only God can redeem, that only God can save. And so for those who know the predicament of the tax collector, who know the predicament of the psalmist, who know the predicament of my friend in that courtroom, know that in and through Christ, God forgives that in and through Christ, God restores. That in and through Christ, God renews. That in and through Christ, God cleanses and God heals and God reconciles. That in and through Christ, God can make all things new. Even us. Accept that you're accepted. Amen.